Welcome to the History Hotline, a direct line to a better understanding of all things Black History and beyond. Welcome to another episode of the History Hotline. Happy New Year, as this is my first episode of 2024. My name is Diana Lincook, and as always, I'll be your host today. And here we are at episode 129. Now, if you have been here for a while, you'll know that that introduction is very much brand new. Um, And I wanted to give a huge thank you uh, to Waylon Mackenzie Witter and Royal Sounds for creating that new introduction for me. I have literally had the same introduction since the first episode and if you listen to episodes you'll know that sometimes it's there and sometimes it's not because sometimes I like it and sometimes I don't. But this new introduction I am so so happy with. I absolutely love it. Uh, Royal Sounds did an amazing job on the music and Wayland on the production so thank you all so so much um, and stay tuned all the way to the end for the new outro and I hope you do enjoy it. Now Many changes for 2024, including the one I'm about to say, which is something that has weighed heavy on my heart for a long time um, and something that I've not really wanted to do, but I feel like the time has come. um, And that is moving these episodes to no longer be a weekly output, but for it to be fortnightly. So there'll be an episode every other week starting this week. um, So the next episode won't be until the 30th of January Um, and I've come to that decision because life's really busy um, and doing a PhD (laughs) I'm not don't get me wrong I'm not like surprised that it's really like time consuming and difficult but oh wow Um, so yeah fortnightly just makes a little bit more sense to me I think in the past when this podcast started you'll remember the episodes were actually quite long they were about an hour sometimes um over an hour 45 minutes at a very minimum um and it's only now when I have guests that the episodes go on to an hour um I've been really conscious to keep the episodes short um and that's because of you know estimated commuting times and thinking about what people's attention span is like but actually I feel like the episodes that I'm able to do in 20 minutes to 30 minutes are not as in-depth as I was doing in the beginning. And I really enjoyed going in-depth. I enjoyed giving the context. I enjoyed really setting out the scene for the historical like moment or thing I was talking about in the episode. And so I'm quite excited to go back to much longer form episodes, really going into these historical moments and issues like today's will be about the race relations act and i'll be able to set the context you know within a really long history of acts that have allegedly um you know been put out to uh, protect black and asian people in britain and the colonies and so being able to kind of have the time to do more in-depth research over two weeks as opposed to weekly, actually putting the episodes out on social media and, you know, marketing them and recommending books and reading lists that go along with the episodes that I am um, creating, it just makes sense in a two-weekly model. And for a final point of housekeeping, shall we say, um, 
I am currently doing a PhD, as you will be aware, um, and it looks at the experiences of children migrating from the Caribbean to Britain as children uh, in the post-war era. Um, the people I've interviewed so far have mostly migrated in the late 50s, 60s and very early 70s. Uh, so that is the focus. Um, the post-war era is the kind of time that I'm studying and I am looking for participants, for more participants. Um, if you haven't heard or seen um, the call out that I have put out, please, if you know anybody that fits the bill or you yourselves fit the bill, having migrated to Britain from the Caribbean as a child in the post-war era and having been to school, so when I say child, I mean under the age of 16, but not as like a baby or a really young child. Um, so whereby you would remember some of your experiences at school in the Caribbean and then at school in Britain as you ideally migrated through the two systems. Um, my PhD is all about that transition, that migration of children and the education systems in both the Caribbean and Britain um, and looking at the ways in which education policy was impacting the experiences of children or not impacting the <laughs> experiences of children. Um, and yeah, I'm hoping to interview people uh, that have migrated at the moment my focus or actually not even my fo well no my focus is on the islands of Jamaica and St Kitts and Nevis um, however I'm very open to hearing from other people as well from other islands so please if, if you fit the bill or want to know more or are curious as to what I'm doing please feel free to send me a message um, on my university email which is d.r.a.lincook, L-Y-N-C-O-O-K, at Q-M-U-L dot A-C dot U-K. And I'll also put that in the show notes. Um, but also on social media, um, I have put out the call for participants and things like that. So you can have a look there as well. Thank you so much um, for everybody that has already sent people my way. I've had people that have said, yeah, I've come from the podcast or someone mentioned it from the podcast. So thank you so much. Um, I really, really do appreciate it. I think that's all for the housekeeping today. Um, let's get into the episode. Today's episode is all about the 1965 Race Relations Act and what it aimed to do, how it was passed through in law, and then the longer history and context that led up to that 1965 Act being passed. Because prior to that, there was, as you can guess, no legislation that would penalise uh, someone in the eyes of the law for racism, racial discrimination, inciting hatred. Um, and this was the kind of first act of its kind. Um, I wanted to think about, you know, what this act was uh, in legal terms but also what that might mean for you know actual real life people that are living in the country um and also its shortcomings um and where it kind of didn't really help people so much as it might have said to or suggested that it would on paper now on paper the act and i quote was an act to prohibit discrimination on racial grounds in places of public resort to, present, to prevent the enforcement or imposition on racial grounds of restrictions on the transfer of tenancies, housing, to penalise incitement to racial hatred and to amend Section 5 of the Public Order Act 1936. Um, the Public Order Act of 1936 was an act that essentially policed and preserved public order 
Uh, one of the parts of it kind of spoke to people wearing political uniforms, even though they weren't of that, um, you know, political organisation. It legislated along the lines of public gatherings and meetings um, and, you know, kind of just continued to police large gatherings and how people acted in, in public. Um, and this act kind of piggybacks onto that one, um, the 65 Race Relations Act Um amends that Public Order Act of 1936 by including racial discrimination. Um, the Act was the first piece of legislation in the UK to address um, this racial discrimination um, following many unsuccessful bills. This wasn't like, oh, we, we've got this idea of a race relations act, let's pass it through. Amazing, hooray. There was a lot of ones that did not make it through and, and were failed. Um, the Act banned racial discrimination, as I said, on grounds of colour, race, or ethnic or national origins, um, which now, you, if you're aware of the protected characteristics, they're a lot more extensive. They consider things like religion and sexuality and disability as well. Um, so this is quite a, in, by our standards in 2024, um, it's quite a narrow act that in actual fact does little to protect people in the way they needed to be protected. Now, it went through royal assent on the 8th of November 1965 and then came into full force um, by December, December the 8th, 1965. So it was introduced by the government um, and it was in response to the number of people that had obviously moved from the Commonwealth countries. Um, at that point in 1965, there would have been nearly a million uh, immigrants living in the UK from Commonwealth countries. Um, and of course, you know, they were dealing with racial discrimination in so many varieties, shapes, sizes, forms on a daily basis. However, I will say, and this is in bold, it was criticised and it is still criticised for failing to address vital areas of discrimination um, and in the areas where it was most prevalent, employment and the wider aspects of acquiring accommodation. Um, and it did lead to the passing of the 1968 Act, um, which extended itself to make unlawful acts of discrimination with employment, housing and advertising. So we get there eventually. And, you know, even today, there's further acts against discrimination um, that have come into play um, much later on in the 21st century. Um, and so I wanted us to think about and contextualise this Act in a longer history that looks at legislations that on paper look to extend the rights of black people in Britain and in its colonies. And we're going all the way back to 1772. Now, in 1772, uh, there was a case, Somerset versus Stuart, where it was ruled by a judge in 1772, enslavement was legal and, you know, all those things. Um, judge William Murray, Lord Mansfield of Kenwood and Chief Justice of the Courts of King's Bench ruled that enslaved people... Um, living in London, in England, um, in this case it was London specifically, but enslaved people living in England could not be sent abroad at their master's whim after an enslaved African man by the name of James Somerset was brought to London from Virginia in the US, escaped enslavement in London, um, and so, you know, by his own, by his own self, um, choices was, was freed, um, and then he was captured um, in London and forced onto a ship bound for the Caribbean to be enslaved there. Um, after approaching abolitionist Granville Sharp, the case was brought to court and this ruling was passed. It actually sent shockwaves through Britain and also America. 
Um, and not surprising that it sent shockwaves through America because I think at that point, uh, when it came to anyway matters of enslavement and the slave trade, they would still, 80 years later, be ruling that an enslaved person was property and had no rights to personhood. And that was in the Dred Scott case in 1857. So not surprised that it shocked America, but it did shock Britain. Um, and it set, obviously, a precedence uh, for the treatment of enslaved people. It didn't, you know, remove enslavement, didn't improve the conditions, uh, but it said that they couldn't be shipped off to the Caribbean from London um, at the whim of a master. And... It's an interesting case. I think I'll probably need to do a full episode on it because there's obviously a lot more to it. But um, it's not something that I'd heard of before actually researching for this episode today. So uh, quite an interesting one and somewhat of a starting point for um, the like legislation that has kind of been passed to protect black people in this country. Um, as we know, black people have been in this country for a very long time. We don't need to say that again. I think I say it all the time. Um, moving forwards to 1807... There was the abolition of the slave trade, not slavery, but the actual trade of enslaved people, which uh, culminated a very long campaign from abolitionists to end this slave trade, um, or in real terms, actually just end it legally, um, as it was very much pushed underground, uh, and many cases meant that there was actually even less protection for enslaved people, because it was now illegal, um, and so conditions probably worsened because there was nothing that could be seen by the public or in actually at in front of people um, that pertain to trading enslaved people. Um, in the eyes of the British law, it was now illegal. Um, and so people were still being kidnapped and transported across from Africa to the Americas in Europe. But it did cut it down significantly because obviously some people would not be willing to take the risk um, and started to move into other modes of trying to increase the enslaved population, uh, most notably in the Caribbean. Um, and that's a whole nother episode, um, to be honest, uh, as we talk about the ways in which um, slave owners in tried to increase the enslaved populations. Now, we fast forward to the early 20th century. And during World War One, there were many racist recruitment policies uh, which meant that West Indian volunteers that wanted to support the war effort were not accepted and unable to join, as Britain probably realised that they were losing the war at a variety of moments and that this war was dragging on a lot longer than they had originally anticipated. Sounds very familiar. Um, they began to accept volunteers from the West Indies as a, new part, as a part of a new regiment called the British West Indies Regiment, um, and whilst this wasn't a legislative change, it wasn't law that was passed, um, but there was no law that suggested there should be a colour bar or that West Indian people couldn't be accepted to service. And because there was no law that said, um, you know, this was the case, there wasn't a law that would then reverse that. It was basically people's own prejudice um, and people in power and their prejudice and this is something that I want to pull out of this episode um, and it's a theme as we think about a lot of these acts you know laws are all well and good and changing the law is all well and good and great however if people's um, actual you know attitudes in their hearts haven't actually changed to be more tolerant less racist less discriminatory less prejudiced then in some cases these acts don't really do much um, and whilst in this case, 
um, West Indian people wanted the right to serve and this change in decision allowed them to do so. There was still a perception um, that they were less than, they were inferior, they weren't allowed to fight within British regiments. They had a separate British West Indian regiment um, because it was seen as uh, Britain not having control of empire if you had black uh, soldiers with guns, you know, in the same standing as white Europeans with guns. And that was essentially uh, the way it was seen. It was seen as improper for these black people to be in a space where they would be killing white Europeans, i.e. Germans. Um, And even though Britain were literally fighting a war against them, they would have rather not have black people on the front lines. Oh, racism is crazy. Anyway, as World War I came to an end, many port towns uh, in the UK had an influx of seamen and members of the Merchant Navy that opted to stay in Britain uh, from the West Indies and from Africa. Um, And I've spoken about that a lot in episode 13, uh, a long time ago. Um, However, racial tensions led to riots across the country in 1919, which is what the episode is about. Places like Glasgow, Liverpool, Cardiff, Newport and Hull many other cities as well Um, and despite the fact that it was for the most part um, white British men inciting these attacks on um, these black seamen and members of the Merchant Navy um, a disproportionate number of black men were arrested um, and these race riots led to restrictions on black people not where he thought this was going um the special restrictions coloured alien seamen's order of 1925 um came out of an issue that I would argue was black people being racially discriminated against, being physically attacked, being open to violence in these port cities. However, it leads to police having the power to arrest um, black and other sailors from other parts of the Commonwealth who failed to provide, and I quote, failed to provide proof of nationality. Um, And it also led to things like um, these uh, black men from finding affordable housing jobs um, and entering certain public places. Um, It's a point I raise because I want to make the point that racial tensions in Britain don't always lead to the protection of black people or that group of people that is facing um, the discrimination because they're just branded as racial tension. The term itself, racial tension, is actually very problematic and it's one I think I might stop using um, unless, obviously, it really does fit the bill because tension suggests that it's like a back and forth. There's like two sides to this racism. But in a lot of cases, actually, it was just the antagonisms of white people. Um, In this case, um, the seamen that felt threatened by the fact that there were uh, immigrants um, that would have been in Britain um, that were competing with them for jobs, for housing and for everything else. You know, the story doesn't change. Um, Different day, same story. Um, And I also wanted to raise a point that laws, as I said and have said, can only go so far to create change. Um, But this was one of the instances where these, you know, tensions... Uh, lead to further sanctions on the black community. Um, During World War II, if we fast forward 20 years or so, uh, West Indian and African volunteers once again found themselves unable to be part of the war effort due to race. Um, And the likes of the League of Coloured People, led by Dr Harold Moody, fought against these prejudices to have this um, unofficial colour bar removed and to see black people across the Commonwealth take up roles of service in the war effort alongside white soldiers. Um, And... 
it is in recent years that I think the thanks, not necessarily the thanks that they deserve for standing up and serving alongside Britain in the war, but I have seen a lot more recognition of Commonwealth soldiers um, and of those people that came to support the war effort financially, um, you know, with manpower, with resources um, from all over the world, all over Britain's empire. Um, They were able to do that. And I would say as much as I don't necessarily understand the sentiment for fighting for a country that really doesn't want you to fight for them, um, I do understand at the same time, if that makes sense. Um, So, yeah. World War Two again, not actual legislation passed through law, um, but conversations between the War Office and the Colonial Office led to these changes, not just for men, but also for women. I've spoken so much about women in the Auxiliary Territorial Service. Um, I think there's an episode on it. I can't remember what number it is. Um, but, you know, the contribution of Caribbean women as well to this effort. Um, and again, a change in sentiment because of the need of war, um, and the need for manpower um, leading to arguably whether we think that people being allowed to fight in war is progress or not um, it's definitely in a sense um, a change and it also opened many doors for many Caribbean people um, for professional development and things like that um, and then gave them the kind of ability to comfortably and confidently move to Britain Uh, after the war was over um, and we'll get to the nationality act very soon but just before that in 1943 uh, we have leary constantine's landmark case against the imperial hotel and episode 11 is all about that and it's very much in depth Um, i speak a lot about leary constantine and about this act so if you want to know more about it in depth episode 11 is where you should go these episodes are from so long ago it feels like well it was years but i don't even remember recording that episode now it's like ancient history anyway while playing in a charity cricket match in london leary constantine who was from trinidad um, and played cricket for the west indies and then came to play for a british team and went on to have an incredible legal political career he was i think the first batman to be called up to the house of lords um anyway he was playing this charity cricket match in london in 1943 which is obviously in the middle of world war ii Um, And he had booked rooms for four nights at this hotel in London, the Imperial Hotel. It's all in the name, really. Um, And he had specifically confirmed that he's black and his family would be black. And please, would there be an issue with them staying? And they said, no, there'll be no issue. Come along. Anyway, when he got there, of course, it was an issue. Um, He wasn't like turfed out that night. Oh, thanks. Um, But the hotel said he would only be allowed to stay one night to avoid offending other guests. Uh, he did not accept that and went to a different hotel, refused to stay with them. But he took legal action against the hotel and won. And he couldn't rely on like the argument that they would he was discriminated against because that wasn't the law. And that is insane to me because obviously we don't know a time. Well, I don't know a time anyway where, you know, it's OK to discriminate against um, or be discriminated against and there be no arm of the law that could protect you. Um, as weak as that might be. Um, So he took action on a line of um, contract and tort grounds um, rather than racial discrimination, arguing that the hotel broke their agreed contract to sell him that room or rent that room for the nights as opposed to pushing for discrimination. Obviously, there was no act. Um, So them knowing that he was black and still saying it would be fine and then him turning up and then being like, it's actually not fine. 
um, was the line he went on and he won. He won that case. And this case is definitely thought of um, and seen as being one of the reasons that the 1965 Act gets pushed through, you know, it is nearly 20 years later, um, over 20 years later, 22 years later. um, But it is often viewed and cited as one of the reasons and one of the like key points is a precedence that what the lawyers call it um in thinking about race relations 1948 the nationality act is passed which provides all commonwealth citizens with entry into britain along with the full citizen rights for better or for worse she says three generations on in this country feeling very cold um yeah so 1948 um is another piece of legislation that doesn't necessarily improve the situation for black people already in Britain, but in the colonies, it allows them free movement. It allows them to settle in Britain. And at that time, the way that the British Empire had absolutely decimated the Caribbean and Africa and parts of Asia and the world over, um, a lot of these people, for them, you know, their only option at a chance for a materially better life, um, economically, Uh, with more opportunities, more fulfilment in a sense, um, better educational prospects for their family, was for them to move to Britain and that 1948 Act allowed them to do so. Once they were here, as we know, some of them were having a terrible time um, due to the level of racism and an instance of that that I've spoken about before is the 1968 Bristol bus boycotts, um, another landmark moment in race relations. If you want to know more about the Bristol Bus Boycotts, episode number 43 is the one for you. Um, But I won't say too much more, except for the fact that it set a precedence. And then we get two years later to the 1965 Race Relations Act. Sound the trumpets. Now, the Race Relations Act, as I have said, banned racial discrimination in public places and made the incitement of racial hatred illegal. And I find it very interesting the use of the term public places, so that meant well, did it mean that you could just be racist at home if you wanted to? I mean, nobody's in your home with you that, well, unless they call the police. But I think it means actually targeting a person in a public place and inciting racial hatred um, for other people to then be racist towards somebody or a group, um, as opposed to, like, you can still be uttering racist words as long as they are not in a public place. That's what I'm reading. Maybe I'm reading that wrong. Um, and I understand you can't really police people in their houses or in their minds. Um, and I guess this is what I mean when I say laws aren't changing attitudes or actually changing the reality in some cases for people. Because if you're still racist, you're still making black people's lives a living hell. Um, and no one's catching you because you're not saying it in a public place or in front of enough people to hear, then your word against theirs. And we know how the police are uh, and how much they protected black communities, i.e. not at all. So, realistically, how much was this act going to help people? Anyway, one thing about this act, which I've mentioned, but I want to stress, is the fact that this act is never, ever mentioned without this footnote. The footnote is, it did not address the issue of discrimination within employment and housing. Um, And by way of housing and acquiring accommodation, um, there was actually a clause within it um, about whether or not the landlord lived in the house. Um, they could discriminate if it was the landlord living in said house. He could still say, I don't want a black person living with me. However, if he or she did not live in that house or property, um, the 
the black person say was trying to rent in, then he, they couldn't say we don't want a black person living here. Um, it's quite an interesting little um, disparity, shall we say? Very interesting indeed. Um, but it didn't address employment, which was one of the biggest issues for black people at that time, especially when the vast majority apart from maybe the children that I'm researching in my PhD, came to Britain for better jobs, for more variety of work, for better pay, you know, for better economic and financial conditions. And so the fact that unemployment is where they're being discriminated against and this 1965 Act does not even do anything really in real terms to make that experience better is a big problem. However, I say all of that to say, and I bring all those acts from 1772 Somerset case to the 1965 Race Relations Act together to say that without any of these acts, um, which were all chipping away, I think, at racism and at the British legal system, we wouldn't get to where we are today. We wouldn't get to 65 without Leary Constantine and the Bristol Bus Boycotts and Dr Harold Moody and the League of Coloured Peoples. Um, and we wouldn't get to, you know, the acts that we have today without all of these that come before it. Um, that's partly because of the way the legal system works and that's the way justice and social justice works. You know, we stand on the shoulders of those that came before us and we continue to chip away at the systems uh, that hold us back and marginalise us um, and discriminate. And so... Here we are in 1965, and now I'm going to talk a little bit about, well, how it came to pass, you know, who was pushing it through, who was trying to block it. So, in 1965, as I've mentioned, there were around a million Commonwealth immigrants living in Britain. Casual racism was everyday life for many of them, and there was simply no legal framework to stop it. The left-wing member of Parliament, Fenner Brockway, had introduced a bill to put a stop to racial discrimination eight times from 1956 all the way to 1964. Um, In 1958, London saw the Notting Hill riots. um, And in 1963, of course, there were the Bristol bus boycotts. And these are cited by a lot of people as spurring on the proceedings um, and really pushing this act through because if you can imagine um mr brockway is pushing through this act or you know introducing a bill or trying to from 56 to 64 when you get two years into that and 58 you see the riots and they were really bad episode 41 i believe um if you want to know more about those um i reference them as a moment of increased racial tension um but realistically it's a, a moment of increased racism that formulates itself and manifests itself as extreme violence um, in West London streets in 1958. Um, And, you know, these proceedings, as I said, are spurred on by events like these, um, which is why I think it's so important to really contextualise this act in a long history of other acts. Um, It was eventually drafted by Home Secretary at the time, Frank Soskis, Um, And there was cross-party cooperation. It was, I believe, Harold Wilson's Labour government uh, that it goes through. Not that I think it matters that much. Um, Fun fact about Harold Wilson is that he studied history for only one year uh, before switching to PPE at Oxford, of course. (laughs) What else would a prime minister study? Um, But, you know, a little bit about the kind of political context at the time. Now, 
the Communist Party um, have quite an important role, I'd say, to play. Um, I did mention it's quite a, a very left-wing member of Parliament that wants to see this legislation and is actually putting these bills through eight, to be precise, uh, to get this done. Um, the party is com- campaigning for legislation to fight racial discrimination um, that faced by the new arrivals in the country, Commonwealth citizens. Um, And in 1955, so 10 years before, the International Department published a a pamphlet which was called No Colour Bar in Britain, um, and it contained a charter of rights for Commonwealth migrants coming to Britain. Um, They had two arguments for the introduction of a Race Relations Act. One of them was a continuation of their uh, obvious ideology that was anti-fascist. Remember, we're coming off of World War II, where we've seen fascism on display for the world to see. Um, And they also wanted just to see more uh, legislation, more legal um, ways to combat racial discrimination um, because they were arguing that it's a lot more widespread than just the far right or the far yeah the far right fascists um, who are somewhat a minority a loud minority as it would be but a minority all the same Um, and they're arguing that actually it's not just you know these really small dark corners of society that are pushing racism and fascism Um, it's actually a lot more widespread Um, and in order to target these fascist organizations and they reference Mosley's um, Oswald Mosley's union movement um, they're needed to be um, some kind of legislation. It needed to be a criminal offence. Um, and I will say there was a website um, called Hatful of History um, and their article called The Communist Party's Campaign for the Race Relations Act 1965. It was really helpful in putting together this part of the episode. So shout out to them um, and the article that was written. I will link it in the show notes if you want to read it in full. Uh, but a lot of the information I'm taking from this section of the episode is um, from that site. Um, in 1965, as we know, it comes through a Labour government and it is passed. Um, and the Labour government also established a race relations board to investigate uh, complaints and violations of the Act um, in order to kind of, I guess, work on like rehabilitating the relationship between parties concerned. Um, and, you know, I don't know how successful that would have been, um, but it was the case that discrimination was now a violation of civil law. Um, and it meant that it was a criminal offence. Um, and as we mentioned earlier, um, it did amend the final clause of the 1936 Public Order Act, um, which deemed that threatening, abusive or insulting with intent to provoke a breach of the peace um, was not limited to the issue of race. Um, and that is a quote. Um, as I've argued before, and this article also argues, The Race Relations Act um, was a lot weaker, I think, than it probably should have been. But it was also a lot weaker than the act that was proposed by Fenner Brockway. Um, And it's argued that the Communist Party felt that way as well. Um, They felt that there were kind of concessions within it and that would have been dangerous, um, which I would also agree with, I'll say. Um, And they suggest that they kind of pander to the 
and I quote, racially prejudiced of the Tory party. Um, so there is, um, again, of course, there's always some kind of political undertone uh, to things like this, even though today we think about Race Relations Act as some kind of good for the good of society, but actually it was still pandering to, um, you know, the political factions within the Tory party, um, within the right and the left. Um, however, it is a step forwards. Um, it is some kind of legislation. It does begin to criminalise um, acts of racism um, that are happy in, happening in public. Now, the implications of the act, well, there was, of course, initial celebration. Um, I think one of the examples I had was the people that were a part of the Bristol bus boycott, I think it was Roy Hackett, commented um, that he was happy to see um, an act like this. You know, it's something that black people had been campaigning for by way of fighting for their rights every day at work, in housing, in education, in healthcare, everywhere they went. Um, and so to see this actually recognised by the state must have been quite a moment for celebration and maybe, you know, a little small weight off their shoulders. Um, the fact that it's actually now against the law. They can, if they want to, if they are able to, if they can afford to, um, you know, take things a step further to get justice as opposed to just having to swallow everything. Um, the first conviction under this act came about in October 1967. Um, a 17-year-old member of the National Socialist Party was found guilty of racial discrimination at Middlesex area sessions um, and the leader of the British National Socialist Movement, Colin Jordan, who was not 17, I think he was in his 40s, was also um, successfully prosecuted under the Act and jailed for 18 months in 1967. So we begin to see this Act coming into play uh, and targeting the people that it needs to target. But we also <laughs> we also see it targeting black people um, and ending up with them being found guilty. Um, Michael DeFreitas, um, later known as Michael X, um, was found, tried for this offence and found guilty alongside, um, actually I don't know if it was at the same time, but four members of the UCPA, the Universal Colour People's Association, um, for, and I quote, staring up racial hatred against white people. Um, and the Michael X episodes I've done are episodes 76 and 77, um, but essentially in July 67, he gave a speech in Reading um, and by August he was at loggerheads with the British state uh, being prosecuted under this new act. Um, they charged him with inciting racial hatred um, and the case obviously and naturally gained a lot of uh, public attention because the government had found a way to lock this man up um, and I quote, the most famous black man in Britain as he was known, um, using anti-racist law which sounds wild but I don't think the law really cared what law they were going to use to get Michael X away and out of the public eye um so they use that one um the act was eventually edited that's definitely not the legal term they edited the act they didn't they like add a new one <laughs> it was strengthened um, with the Race Relations Act of 1968, which extends the legislation to cover employment and housing, um, the things that we argue that it didn't do in the first place. So it took another three years. Um, and then by 1976, the Rela Race Relations Act that was passed then um, was, you know, further developments by way of protecting 
people, um, marginalised people uh, from racism and other forms of discrimination. Um, and then that eventually leads up to the creation of the Commission for Racial Equality, which continues um, this work within a legal setting of arguably protecting black people as well as other marginalised groups. Now, that is the story of the 1965 Race Relations Act. One thing I will say that's quite interesting about um, like legislation and acts changing the kind of living conditions for black people in Britain is that in contrast in the US, the civil rights movement was all about um, legislation. It was about changing laws because they had things like segregation written into law. So they needed to overturn those laws in order for black people to be even have a semblance of equality in America. Britain didn't start with that same footing. Um, as we went back to 1772 at the start of the episode, Britain had enslavement. Um, they had enslaved people on British soil. Um, once that was abolished, uh, they essentially had global colonies, um, of course, due to empire, of Commonwealth subjects um, that were black, that were Asian, uh, from Africa, from the Caribbean, um, from all over the world. Uh, that would see themselves and find themselves on British soil very soon. Um, and so it's a very different kind of issue when we're thinking about um, how far these acts can go when in its initial sense there are no acts that are actually legally discriminating against people. There's no acts protecting people, but there are also no acts that are um, persecuting people by way of law, um, which they had in America um, from enslavement um, as all of American slavery was on American soil because they didn't like have an empire in the way that Britain did. Um, and so that is, you know, a few things to think about uh, at the end of that episode. Um, and a big thank you for tuning into the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I feel like I haven't done like a proper history teach you something about something that happened in the past. I think everything that's happened recently within the world um, has been so overwhelming. Um, it feels very wrong to not come on here and talk about it. Um, you know, things being the situation in Palestine, Congo, Sudan, um, Guyana, all around the world. There are so many issues. Um, in saying those four, I've probably missed another 40. Um, you know, things happen in within Britain, the US, Africa, Caribbean, all over the world, Australia. Um, I'm literally just thinking of, of examples of um, issues around the world that are, are really negatively impacting the lives of people um, at a variety of levels, all because of colonisation, European colonisation, especially Britain. Um, everything that's happening now, for the most part anyway, is a result of Britain. Um, and I'll I'll leave the history segment of this episode um, there. I will say um, I wanted to I wanted a little segment in the podcast. I feel it like people that have segments on their podcasts are really cool. They're like, oh, now we're going to introduce our weekly segment or our fortnightly segment. Um, and so the segment I have decided on is that I'm going to tell you what I'm watching and reading in the fortnight of this episode, and I'm going to tell you because. Sometimes I read things and I watch things and I think, oh, I'm just going to go on the podcast and talk about them because they're so great or also terrible. Um, but this week, especially, um, I can only think about. Well, not literally, but, you know, 
in a hyperbolic sense. I can only think about the post office scandal. I watched the um, Mr. Bates versus the post office. Um, that happened in, I believe, the late 90s, early 2000s in Britain, and it's only coming to light now. I only heard about this in the last, like, I'd say, year or two, and it went on the news. Um, and the scandal is whereby um, a lot of postmasters, and I say a lot, it's like five to six hundred, maybe even more, um, were deemed as stealing from post office earnings in a sense of they had this, like, computer technical system that was cashing up wrong and people were interfering with the systems remotely and then it, the postmasters so the people that own the post office who just tend to be like average you know average joes elderly people that have these post office are pillars of the community um and are now being accused of fraud and there's a part of their contract that says that if you know their earnings are out by any amount they have to pay it back and so some of them had like bills for tens of thousands of pounds and they're being called thieves and they're literally like we didn't take the money and they oh honestly i watched all four parts yesterday and it was like heart-wrenching it just oh if you haven't watched it definitely watch it familiarize yourself with that case another failing of the british state not surprised wonder how many more we'll hear coming out in the future and how many things are happening now like how many people are in situations like that thinking they're alone thinking that you know nobody can help them and this miscarriage of justice is occurring and they don't even know that other people are going through it as well anyway really blew my mind yesterday watching that i'm reading many things but i'm reading fiction wise the color purple by alice walker um there is um a, a film version of the musical coming out the end of the month in britain i think it's already come out in america um and i'm very excited to watch that um it's a book i studied at university and i saw the musical a few years back and so i'm quite excited to see a film adaptation of the musical even though i don't really like musicals um but a great classic and i think it's quite important that I don't really like remakes, but I think sometimes it's a good time to remake things and it seems like it's going to be really good despite all the issues um, that seem to be coming out with the actresses and actors um, who aren't really being paid fairly, treated fairly, and by fairly I mean in the same way as they would on other productions. Um, so something again to think about. And the thing I'm reading academically, shall we say, is a book that came out in 2019, Education and Race from Empire to Brexit um, by Sally Tomlinson. Um, and it is kind of putting some of the like education policy that specifically pertains to race through the context of empire in the post-war period. Um, which is where you see education um, being compulsory for the first time in 1944 with the Butler Education Act um, and it going all the way up to kind of the present day with Brexit and looking at, again, the legislation, the language used around immigrants coming to this country and them accessing education and some of the issues uh, that are kind of being spouted as a result of, of these migrations. Um, great, great text. It's not directly... Um, link into my PhD but you know you have to read around the subject um and I would recommend that um as a really good book so yes that brings me to the end of the first episode of 2024 oh I've really enjoyed being back on the microphone I will say thank you so much for listening um we'll be back in two weeks with a really special episode it's going to be a jam-packed one actually that thinks about immigration deportation it's going to have a few special guests on it 
Um, and I'm not going to say any more because I haven't actually recorded the episode yet. So maybe it's different to how it is in my mind by the time it comes out. Um, but please do tune in in two weeks time and I will see you again then. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. That's it for another episode of the History Hotline. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you listen to or tell a friend to tell a friend. To continue the conversation, follow us on social media at The History Hotline on Instagram and at The History HL on Twitter. The History Hotline is hosted by me, Deanna Lynn Cook. Research and marketing done by Zakia Riaz. Production by Waylon Mackenzie-Witter and original music provided by Royal Sounds. Sponsored by Musetopia. Street Hotline.